Ephesians 6, 1-9 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church, as you all learned. Uh, when I was uh, 16 years old, as many of us did, I took a driver's ed course because it would reduce the uh, insurance premiums that, uh, that I had to pay for insurance. And most of the driver's ed course, I, don't, I, I suppose these are all different. The driver's ed course in my hometown was administered by the local uh, police department. And it was a, a cop about 25 years old taught this course. And for, for a number of days, I don't remember how long, it, it seemed like it was, it was like two weeks of coursework or something. We looked at videos of car crashes. And, uh, and, and then, you know, basically he would say, don't drive like that. Well, the end of the course was a three-hour driving test. And... Um, we could basically pick wherever we wanted to go on this driving test, um, you know, as long as we um, followed the rules, which was basically don't crash. Well, I was merging onto I-25 uh, in Colorado Springs. And, uh, you know, we were taught to look. It, 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 was, it was very clear. When you're merging, look in your mirrors and then look over your shoulder. Well, there's pretty bad traffic. And so I looked into my mirrors, and then I looked over, over my shoulder, but I stayed looking over my shoulder because there were many cars coming. And you can imagine what happened next. The guardrail happened next. And uh, fortunately, at that moment, the, the police officer woke up. He was sitting in the seat next to me. And the person who was sitting in the back seat, another student, woke up. And uh, then we had to pull over and inspect the damage because I had run their police car into the guardrail. And uh, it was actually funny, though, because I expected to get in trouble for crashing the police car. Um, but I didn't. In fact, the, the instructor filed a report, supposedly, and I never heard anything again. And I think it's because one of his students crashed the police car. And I don't know how he explained the damage, except to say that three weeks of watching videos about car crashes meant that he still hadn't done his job because one of his students crashed the car. Uh, it's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Because that was very much my failure as a driver, my failure to obey the rules. 
also his failure as a teacher in a certain sense. And I think he really uh, felt that. Um, why do I say this? Uh, in the Christian life, we, d- we don't want to admit our failures. And we don't want to admit that our failures that result from a lack of obedience on one side or a lack of instruction on the other side can result in possibly the same thing. But, but also there's an encouragement in, in that the, the solutions to failures of either obedience or instruction is actually the, the same thing. Uh, these two failures have the same root cause. It's, it's forgetting who we are and who we follow. And we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we've come to these uh, very practical sections that basically answer this question, what does it mean to walk in, in Christ in my life every day? That's what we've been talking about as we go through Ephesians. What does it mean to walk in Christ? And the Apostle Paul answers this question. Um, the, the question's answered not just that, that the gospel changes our behavior, but that walking in Christ and being filled with the Spirit, he says in chapter 5, verse 18, it transforms our relationships, not just our behavior, but our relationships. As we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he says in chapter 521, uh, we're transformed in our relationships. Last week, we saw how that plays out between husbands and wives. And and today, we're looking at some more of the kind of the, the fundamental relationships in our lives. At the most basic level, the passage is, as we read, about parents and children. It's about masters and servants, or you could say employers and employees, maybe, um, at that most basic level. But broadly speaking, one could say that Paul is also talking just generally about leading and following. And what does it mean to be a Christian and to lead and to follow? And that Christ transforms those very things, how we lead in our relationships and how we follow in our relationships. And that motivation can be summarized in this way, which is repeated throughout the passage. We are in the Lord. That's what changes how you lead and how you follow. The the very fact that you and, and I are in the Lord, that we are in the Lord. Christian obedience and leadership flow from the same river of Christ. That's what I want today, that Christian leadership and Christian obedience flow from the same river of Christ. And so as we talk about this today, uh, we'll just follow the, the passage and the, and the pattern it shows. I want to spend a little bit more time on the front end of the passage as we go through it, because if we understand what he's saying just about uh, children and parents, really so much, so, so much can flow out of that just in general leadership in life. He's spoken already to husbands and wives about their Christ-likeness. So now it's natural that Paul would move on to speaking about children and really speaking to children. And one of the things that Luke pointed out last week, which is worth pointing out again, is just how strange it is that Paul should speak directly to children in a letter that's addressed to the church. This is fundamentally countercultural. And we'll see why, but it needs to be set up front because what we read as just very basic biblical instruction was, was in, in many ways um, an affront to Roman culture back then, and I think even an affront to our culture today. You probably, you've probably read in, in Luke chapter 18, there's a time when Jesus himself is teaching and the disciples were, 
were trying to keep people from bothering uh, Jesus with their children. And the children were brought to him, it says, so that he might lay his hands on them and, as, and pray. This is in Luke 18, but also, also Matthew 19. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said this. What did Jesus say? You know the passage. He said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for, such belongs, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Paul takes the same principle and addresses children themselves as believers. Children, he addresses you as believers. And he gives children instruction about what it means and what, that, what it looks like to walk in Christ. What is one of the most funda- fundamental ways that a child can live out the Christian life? It's by obeying parents. No one said amen. <laughs> I know everyone thought it, though, as soon as that passage came across the screen. Like, yeah, we finally got here. <laughs> Children, obey your parents. You're probably thinking it this morning. You're thankful now that it's being preached on because now you can go back to your, your kid after church and say, see, you're breaking God's law just this morning when you disobeyed me. Just wait, parents, just wait. It's not just about obedience, is it? Every, every culture, every society, Christian or non-Christian, says that children should obey their parents. It's no secret. It's no secret. Christian obedience is this, as I said earlier, in the Lord. Obey your parents, he says, in the Lord. It doesn't, just, uh, uh, it doesn't just mean obey them if they follow the Lord, but that obedience to parents flows naturally out of your following Jesus. Your children's obedience to you should flow out of their following Jesus. It's not a new thing for followers of God. And in fact, Paul says it's ingrained in the fabric of the faith, stemming all the way back to the Ten Commandments. When we're in Christ, we're enabled to follow God's law more closely. Why is that important to point out? Well, it's because the requirement that children should obey their parents was, was not in and of itself countercultural, as I, as I just said. When Paul says, children, obey your parents, for this is right, any, any Roman citizen would have agreed with that statement, that it's right to obey your parents. But by saying that the obedience takes place in, in the Lord, he links obedience, Paul links obedience to something that God has established and had established in the fifth of the Ten Commandments. It's a different motivation, isn't it? It's a different motivation to say that this is how God wants his people to act than, than it is just to say this is, this is right, this is how creation is made. Specifically, the the Ten Commandments were given to God's people. And Paul says this is a commandment for God's people. He's giving children, Christian children, different motivation. Do we give our own children that same motivation? It's a good question to start off asking. Motivation that flows not out of human relationships. This is what you owe me because of who you are before me. But out of a divine relationship. This is how we ought to act because of who you are in Christ. It, it would be easy to look at this as Paul's trump card that he could use in order to get the children to behave in a certain way. 
or a trump card that we could use in order to get our children to behave in a certain way. It's, it's sort of a divine because I said so, isn't it? It's bumper sticker theology if we treat it that way. God said it, and you do it. That's not what Paul is saying. How many parents remember being frustrated as a child when your parents told you to do something because I said so? Only one. Thank you, Stephen. Two. There's at least two of us in the room. Children, your parents, they can't stop you from answering this question right now. How many of you get frustrated when your parents tell you to do something because I said so? Many more. (laughs) Many more. Well, everywhere. How about that? Just wait. One day you're going to say it too, so... I want to talk to the kids for a second because we all get frustrated by, by, a, by a divine because I said so. It actually doesn't mean anything to us when someone says, why should, when you ask, why should I do something? And someone just says to you, because I said so. So let me talk directly to the kids. And this is actually kind of weird. I've never really done this in a sermon. So you're welcome, Luke. <laughs> this is what you got. <laughs> um, Paul, Paul addresses the kids in a letter, and it's weird, actually. So let's get weird here for a second. Let me talk to the kids. And if kids, you're not paying attention, which you may not be, I'll say dinosaurs. See if I can get some dinosaurs. Uh, What else? Fortnite. (laughs) Legos. Okay, good. Now I'm getting some attention from the kids. All right, good. Now I've got your attention. The The Tyrannosaurus Rex and Legos have nothing to do with what I'm about to say, but I've got your attention, okay? Listen, kids... Listen to me. Some of you don't yet know what it means to believe in Jesus. I know that. And that's okay for now. But many of you kids in this room have made a profession of faith. That is, many of you kids in this room have said, I want to follow Jesus. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Kids, listen, the best way for you to follow Jesus, because you have said, I want to follow Jesus, the best way for you to do that is by obeying your parents even when you don't want to. Even when they don't seem to be obeying God. And as long as they're not telling you to do something, kids, that goes against what the Bible says, you have to obey them. If your parents are telling you to do something that is not what the Bible says, you should tell someone. Luke's laughing because I just justified a bunch of uh, kids (laughs) the Bible really has to, to say something against it. But listen, kids, the best way you can follow Jesus is by obeying your parents. Okay. Now you can go back to whatever you were doing. (laughs) I just wanted to say that your parents love you. And if they follow Jesus, they want you to follow Jesus. They might not always act like they should, but following them is a a way of showing Jesus that you love him. Parents, Paul is not using bumper sticker theology when he quotes from the Old Testament. He's he's pointing to, to the fact that God's promises 
are attached to a commandment. And he makes promises to his people when they follow him. He just says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is not, this is not a, it's not a catch-all for saying, as long as I follow God, I'm going to get my way all the time. But it is very much a general way of saying to people that things go better for children who obey their parents. It's a fact that God has built into his world. And if parents are following the Lord and their children obey them, and they themselves learn to follow the Lord, then there's a legacy and there's a heritage that's, that, the, that, it, that the Lord establishes. And because I said so, as useful as it is, as it is sometimes, is not actually the final word in parent. The portion of the passage is primarily directed at children, but as an, as an application to us parents out there, if if Paul is willing to address children as believers, then we have to treat our children as believers. That means for children who are communing members, specifically at Christ Church, when, ch- when your child is a communing member at Christ Church, and when things come up that concern the whole church, we've got to be explaining these things to our children and treat them as believers. It's, it's our responsibility as, as parents to show our children what membership in a congregation looks like. And they are watching. And what it looks like might vary if a believer is six years old or 16 years old. But if the Bible expects that children can be motivated to follow you, not because you said so, but because they want to follow Jesus, then it's upon us to show them how, help, how following us helps them follow him. Obeying us is not the end goal for our children. It's one of the ways that we can help them follow Christ. And just like Paul said earlier in his, his letter, part, Paul, uh, when he was talking about husbands and wives, Paul, Paul argues uh, from the one who follows to the one who leads. And you can almost imagine all the parents in the congregation in Ephesus nodding their heads in agreement when Paul says, children, obey your parents. And looking down at the child and saying, are you listening to this? You need to catch this. This is good stuff. And only for the children to turn around and say the same thing to their parents when Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And now the kids can look up at the parents and say, are you listening to this? This is good stuff. Why does Paul address the fathers specifically? Well, he's told the children to obey both parents. So I think what we can say is that the passage can't just be directed at fathers. But when Paul is, is acting, writing counterculturally, um, it can be said that logically and practically spe- speaking, whatever he says to the fathers applies to mothers as well. It's not as if fathers can say to mothers, I don't get to provoke them to anger, so that's your job. It would be convenient if that was what's happening, but that's not what's happening. By, by addressing wives earlier and now children directly, Paul has not so subtly subverted a patriarchal system that would say, my place is to lead if you're a father, and it is the place of everyone in the house to follow me. Paul's subverting a system like that. 
He's already said to the woman, yes, you must submit to your husband. But to the men, he says, you have to outdo your wife in sacrificial love and affection and lay down your lives as Christ laid down his. That's what Jesus did for you. And in a a similar way, Paul contradicts Roman society that would say to children, you matter very little to the world. You only exist because I brought you into the world. And if you don't obey me, I can take you out of the world. Now, lightheartedly, we've all heard and maybe even said that ourselves. (laughs) Maybe we cited Proverbs 13 when we said it, whoever spares the rod hates his son. And Paul here is not saying that we should not discipline our children. But I would say this, later on in the passage when Paul addresses masters and bondservants, and he says to masters, stop your threatening. That, that phrase, stop your threatening, is not just applying to the masters and their servants. It would be a really irresponsible way to interpret the passage if we didn't also say that applied to the other relationships that Paul talks about. When Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger, he's talking about both actions and words that stand contrary to how believers should speak to whom? To other believers. To other believers. Even if those words seem totally appropriate for how parents in the world speak to their children and how masters or bosses in the world speak to their subordinates, godly discipline and instruction is not threatening and it's not domineering. And it does require some nuance. So what we don't want to do is pit one passage of Scripture, what Paul says in Ephesians, against what God says in Proverbs. Paul's not saying, and I'm not saying, that discipline is unnecessary. But discipline to what end? To what end? Discipline and instruction, Paul says, in the Lord, once again. Discipline and instruction in the Lord. What Paul is doing is breaking the chain that we think exists between anger and discipline. The chain between anger and discipline, the chain between anger and discipline that we act like must exist, even if we don't say it explicitly, Paul is breaking that chain. He's making a specific application here to something that he already mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 31, he said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. When we we read these verses in chapter 4, I'll bet that very few of us thought about our children. We may have thought about the other believers in the church, other relationships, We didn't think about our children. Why? They're a different class, aren't they? They're not the same class of believer that Paul is talking about. And yet here he brings it up, talking about anger. Paul is basically telling one group of believers how they ought to interact with another group of believers. There may be a blood relationship, but there's a deeper spiritual bond. So parents should not use their power and authority to needlessly aggravate their kids by being capricious or wielding the power of parenting in such a way that believing children are frustrated by your own lack of Christ-likeness. 
It is very difficult for children to follow in the Lord if parents model behavior and either implicitly or explicitly teach their children things that are not in the Lord. One of the greatest ways that we can provoke our children to anger is by parental hypocrisy. What Paul is saying is that every act of disobedience in our children is an opportunity for discipline and instruction in the Lord. And obviously this is actually easier said than done if you've ever been in a moment of discipline. This is where we have to allow the gospel to to transform us. And it won't happen overnight. And it will never happen perfectly. But it's still important that we recognize it because we often want to take the command that is given to parents and give it to our children. We treat our children as if it's their sole responsibility not to provoke us to anger. And yet that's not what Paul says to parents. In our inability to control our own angry impulses, we flip Paul's words around. We make the greater commandment that is given to the parents the responsibility of the child. That's not how Paul sees it. Bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as he says it, is actually the opposite of provoking them to anger. Sometimes we think that when discipline and instruction of the Lord makes our kids angry, that it only displays their ungodliness and our own righteousness. And it's possible that that's the case. But we should think about that. Oftentimes it means that we are being the opposite of godly. We're not showing them godly discipline. We're not actually instructing them. The fundamental burden of parenting should be what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. To the Corinthian church, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And he follows this up in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the heart of Christian discipline and Christian discipleship. Our ultimate goal with our children is not to create functional members of society who carry around the emotional baggage of our unmet expectations. But our goal is to get our children to be imitators of Christ. They cannot and will not do that if we do not imitate Christ. And later on in this chapter, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains for the gospel. Paul Tripp, in his book on parenting, picks up on this metaphor of being an ambassador. And he calls the kind of authority that we as parents have ambassadorial authority. And he says this, It is vital that you understand that you have no independent, Autonomous authority as a parent. None. You have not been given the right and power to exercise authority in the lives of your children any way you want. The opposite is true. The ambassador has authority only because he represents a king who has authority. He makes his invisible authority visible by sending visible authority figures as his representatives. In the lives of your children, you are the look of God's face. You are the touch of his hand, and you are the tone of his voice. Now he 
we're going to move on in the passage. And we come to a part of the passage that is, um, it can invoke some controversy depending on how you read it or depending on what translation you're reading. Because Paul, after addressing children and parents, addresses bondservants and masters. Or what is more, this is the controversial part that some translations and even some places in the ESV uh, translate the word, translates the word bondservant as, a, as slave. Given the context we live in, when our, our own country has a dark and complicated history with slavery, uh, the language has been used, and I would say wrongly, as, as evidence for the irrelevance of Scripture. By not speaking out against it, Paul is implicitly saying, some would say, that slavery is okay, but that's not what Paul is saying. So there's a reason why now in many modern translations, the word translated as bondservants, uh, there's a reason why this word is translated as bondservants instead of slaves. Because our, our modern conception of slavery that involves effectively kidnapping people from a foreign land and making them our property so that we can get free labor is not what slavery actually was in this time. Bond servanthood was a way of paying off an obligation that was owed. To be sure, it was at times and had plenty of opportunity to be a very oppressive system. And yes, it did mean that one person could say they owned another person. But it was not one that could be overcome by overcoming racism. Racism, racism, which existed back then as it does today, was exercised actually in other ways than in slavery. Romans could be bondservants to other Romans. And there were varied opportunities to work oneself out of servanthood even. And some servants were, were many, most of them, you could even say, were effectively just employees of an employer. Charles Hodge, who was the principal of Princeton Seminary, 1851 to 1878. And I, I'm, I'm quoting Charles Hodge right now because he was a Presbyterian pastor and theologian around the same time of the Civil War. In his commentary on Ephesians, he had a a very balanced approach. On the one hand, he says that it is a mistake to think that what scriptures tolerate as unlawful under any given circumstances may be cherished and regarded as permanent. That is to say, just because scripture accepts something as a fact of society doesn't mean we should keep doing it. That's a given. That is just be, uh, um, what I just said. Uh, he goes on to say that the Bible's way of dealing with this and similar institutions is to enforce on everyone concerned, on everyone concerned, the great principle of moral obligation, assured that those principles, if allowed free scope, will put an end to all evils, both in political and social relations. What Hodge is saying here is that it's not for Paul in this passage to attack slavery in any of its forms. He's not making social commentary here. He's not concerned with pointing out his own acceptance of something that was part of a fabric of Greco-Roman culture. And he's not calling for its abolition. He's answering a very simple question. What does it mean to be free in Christ even while you're still under human authority? What does it mean? How do we live that out? The best analogy that we have in our modern day, though it's not exactly the same, is really between employers and employees or bosses and subordinates or however you want to put it. There, there are some obvious differences. 
In our day, most of the time, if you choose to obey your boss at work, you're not doing something illegal. Although for many of you in the military, it probably is the case. You can't go to jail if you don't obey your boss at work for most people. The stakes are still high. You might lose your job. And if you lose your job enough times, you might have a hard time finding a new one. But it's a different thing. What we find in this passage, though, is that the principles that Paul lays out are are relevant to everyone at all times. But staying in the household, he talks to another group of believers who are in the same households, husbands and wives, parents and children, and then the servants of those same households. You can envision a father bringing the whole household to worship, his children, his wife, the servants, and then Paul subverting again the dominant culture and speaking to them directly. He spends a great deal of time addressing the more submissive parts of the household. Paul treats the servants as equal members of the congregation, just like he does children. And he goes for the heart here in sort of a different way because there's, there's a play on words in the passage. And the play on words is this, that he's constantly talking about being in the Lord. And I don't like to dive into to the Greek very much, but it's really relevant in this passage because the word Lord is the same word as the word master. That's used throughout the passage. You see the play on words there? He says to bond servants, you can show your obedience, your obedience to the Lord or your master in heaven by how you serve your master on earth. Obedience to an earthly master back then was required by law, but what was not required? Heartfelt obedience. Heartfelt obedience, not to an earthly master, but to the Lord Jesus Christ is what Paul's seeking in this congregation. He's saying that that Christ transforms our motivation for everything. Everything we do in life can be done in Christ. We can serve earthly masters not because we fear and tremble before them, but because we revere Jesus as our Lord with a sincere heart, he says in verse 5, as you would Christ. It's not just an outward display of obedience, not by way of eye service, he says, as people pleasers. How often do we do things in our jobs just to make someone else happy? but we do them resentfully, begrudgingly, grumbling under our breath. This way of thinking, Paul's way of thinking, sets us free from all of that because being subject to a human institution has no bearing on our standing before Christ. You should hear that. No matter what people, your parents, your bosses, or anyone else may have told you. In Christ, he says in Galatians, there is neither Jew neither bondservant nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is especially relevant when we feel like we do um, thankless work. Have you ever done good work that you felt like went unrecognized? Of course, we all have. This is new motivation to continue working as in the Lord. And Paul also turns his attention to earthly authority when he speaks directly to the masters. And quickly, I'll say this. He doesn't actually say much to the masters 
by way of specifics. But he says something completely outrageous when he says, Masters, do the same to them. This is absolutely crazy. For Paul to say to the servants of a household, obey your masters, and then to say to the masters, do the same to them. And he's not saying to the masters that they now need to obey their servants. Paul was not saying earlier to parents that you must now obey your children. But the way you go about your work, the way you do your relationships every day, must be in the Lord. Some of us in this room are students. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are parents. Some of us are not. Some of us are leaders with a handful of direct reports. Some of us are leaders of larger organized units. Some of us don't really have a leadership position, but we may someday. Whether you are in any or none of these things, Paul says that the transformative work of the Spirit is, and, and how we work and how we do relationships is actually the same. Do not be conformed to the world, but by, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he says in Romans 12. Questions like, how must I think about parenting my children? How must I think about profit in my business? What must I do in this difficult situation at work? What must I do in this difficult parenting situation? Every one of these questions has to be submitted to Christ so that we, as we walk in him, begin to develop a daily rhythm of submission to his lordship. And I want to close with this. It's something we were talking about at the elders' retreat this weekend. One of the core values of Christ Church, the most core value, the, the primary value of the seven, which you may or not be, not be able to name, is this one. And it's one that you should be able to name. That the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. We don't mean that on the inside I am changed, but everything I do stays the same. It means that being a Christian child is different. Being a Christian parent is different. Being a Christian employee is different. Being a Christian boss is different. Not just different because of how you act, but that how you act flows out of who you are. He's laid down his life for us. Now we live and move in him. Because we are all, no matter who you are, if you believe in his name, then you are in the Lord. And our relationships must reflect that. Let's pray together.